Hello everyone, this is Future Patrick here. I just wanted to let everyone know that currently the Misplay podcast is running a survey to get people's thoughts on the state of Eternal and how they're feeling about the game. There are several options to access the survey without actually listening to their podcast. I would recommend one of those. Uh, One of them is to check out their Reddit post. Also, Eternal Warcry has a big banner at the top of their page, which you can click on the top link, which takes you directly to the survey, so you will not have to look at anything to do with the Misplay podcast. And thirdly, if you must, you can check out the Misplay website, go to their show notes, click the link to the survey, and then immediately close the page. I recommend everyone filling that out because... As Ben would say, the more data, the better, and it'll be really interesting to hear. And I know Parmalee has already mentioned in the Discord that they have over 350 or so responses, so it'd be great for that number to get even higher. Anyway, uh, we'd really appreciate if you took the time to fill that survey out. Thank you, and now on to the show. Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padamaru, Ruben, or Barefoot Farmer, and Ben Gracer, back on the data mining team. It's episode 31. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to talk about how our draft weeks went, some announcements, a listener of the week, Patreon question of the week, Card of the Week, 7-Win Run Breakdown, our main topic, which will be an interview between Ben and Gato Sujo from the Misplay Podcast. So Ben, how is your draft week? Well, it's it's actually been pretty good so far. We're in the first week of the new month, so we get to start grinding some rank up again, and my results have been pretty good. But I have um, had a little bit of trouble getting enough fixing in my decks. I'm still kind of forcing 5-faction every, every time. So I think I'm either going to have to prioritize fixing even higher or maybe move to some more conservative uh, drafting strategy. How have you been doing? Well, I got in all of my winter oats. I'm going to hopefully plant my uh, winter spinach this week. And then I just have winter rye to plant next week. And then maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to play Eternal again. Is it winter? It's getting close. Are you in Brazil, perhaps? No, see, the trick is, is like for winter spinach and winter kale, what you have to do is you got to plant it in the fall so that by the end of fall, it's big enough that you can harvest it in the winter because things don't grow in the winter. And yeah. winter is coming, as they winter say. Winter is coming. And it can come. I, I live actually in a pretty cold part in New York. So, for example, uh, Two years ago, we had our first frost September 1st. It can get cold quickly here. But anyway, so I'm hoping that uh, once we get all of this uh, winter crap out of the way, I can start playing Eternal. But in the meantime, I'm still talking a lot of Eternal, reading a lot of Eternal, just not playing a lot of Eternal right now. Shall we move on to announcements? Sounds good. So first off, I'd like to thank all our patrons who make this show possible and... Uh, continue to help me help motivate me to do this show despite the fact that uh eternal has not been a main focus of my life right now and those are marshall cassandrith jed the homerid raven dragon s rich sun blaze work done sun and yist out thank you all for uh helping keep this show running 
And that leads us actually into our listener of the week. We'd like to to thank Jedi EJ for being a great listener. I I think he has really stepped up his content game recently and has really and also always been just like a great proponent of the show. He uh, participated in the double draft duel tournament, recorded all his pitches, released them on YouTube. That was kind of fun to watch. He's been participating a bit in Discord. He streams a lot, but he's also been doing, I think, really doing a lot to try to like promote other content creators recently. So he's been doing this uh, content creator showdown where we've been having a tournament of a bunch of content creators and he's been uh, editing editing all of that footage together and he's gonna release them as videos later on YouTube. So look forward to that too. So thank you Jedi for you know listening to the show, talking about the show and doing everything you do for the eternal community. <laughs> all right, and then we have another Patreon question of the week this week. And this is once again from Judd the Hammerid, and he asks, do you think the signals in pack one and two can be hard to read with the option of staying open longer since you can prioritize fixing in the curated packs? So yeah, what do you I th think about it? I think this is a good question. I think for the strategy that I'm playing, I the five faction mid-range, I, I don't really care which factions are open. It's more the, the strategy that needs to be open. Um, so it doesn't affect me as much, but what is kind of affecting me is what I talked about earlier, where the people are prioritizing the strangers more strongly, and that is having a uh, adverse effect on the ability to play a lot of factions. What about you, Patrick? When you do, um, when you're looking to build like more of a two or three color deck, is it harder to read the signals if there's people? Kind of jokers like me just taking whatever the best card is out of every pack i i don't think so i think the interesting part about this format is you can draft decks while ignoring signals but i think the signals are still there like uh when you watch you know yeah, yeah. like i said i haven't been playing a ton of drafts but like even when you watch you know streamers draft or whatever even if they're forcing five color you can just see like, oh, there's no more primal cards showing up. And so, the, you know, part of it is your packs are going through more than just like the person next to you. It's multiple people. So if as long as one of them is drafting, you know, a reasonable deck, then you will <laughs> see, you will see those signals. So I don't know if, if it's really manifested itself as being harder to read signals and i think part of it is also like what jed mentions is the fact that you can stay open longer also means you can wait longer to verify the signals or read the signals they kind of work together and so i think in the end it sort of is a wash you also have a little bit of ability to take a gamble on a color and turn that color into a splash Mm -hmm. As long as it's not like super uh, influence intensive uh, and it's pretty easy to make basically any starting situation into a splash if you're taking good cards at mm -hmm. least. So that's kind of mitigates a little bit the, the need to read signals super strong and make a decision very early. But I like, like your point, as you say, you can kind of wait a little bit longer. Okay, so let's move on to card of the week. So what's your card of the week, Ben? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of uh, unit that buffs other unit cycle. Uh, Lethrite Blade Whirl, Master at Arms, Primeval Plover, First Frost Shaman, and Core Scavenger. Because some of those cards are doing pretty well. Basically, the ones that buff power <laughs> or attack are doing pretty well. 
And the ones that do not buff attack are not doing very well at all. Uh, the, the card I wanted to call out specifically was First Frost Shaman. That card is a 2-5-4-5, I believe, that gives yep. another unit plus 3 health. You would think that that card is good because it uh, is like a worn shield type effect uh, for in a twist format. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it gives 3 health, and 3 health is a lot of health. That's a lot of twisting that you can do. But the card is actually at below half background rate. And I think it is hurt a little bit by the card uh, Court Mage, which is a pledge unit that just costs one less, uh, and for the same two five stat line. Yeah, it doesn't have a zero cost worn shield with it though. It doesn't, but I it, like Court Mage is above background rate, fifty percent above background rate, and and First Frost Shaman is below half background rate. So that's a huge difference between two cards. Yes. And like core scavenger, we haven't seen a single core core scavenger. That's the fire version of this that uh, gives plus two plus one, and is just like a five four four seven. That, that card we we've not seen a single copy in a, a hundred and however many lists that we've had. And then similar cards like maybe cannon bearer are above background rate. So, so some of these cards are not doing too hot. Uh, so make sure if you're going to play the cards like this, make sure they're the the Blade Whirl and Mastered Arms version, not the not the other three. Mm-hmm. What yeah, about you, that, Patrick, have you played much of them? I agree with sort of the order they're in. Blade Whirl or Master Arms are the two best. Primeval Plover does buff strength, but it's just such a small body for such a high cost that it makes sense that it's not great. Though, yeah, it's kind of a twist enabler too because it, it gives two points of health. What's interesting to me though is Primeval Plover does not seem that much worse than Valkyrie Militant to me. Well, Valkyrie Militant isn't amazing, and it's like the difference it's not between half background rate though. Valkyrie Militant, sure. Well, so what's better, Locust or Cloud Snake Hatchling? Oh, well, Locust is much better. Well, why? It's only it costs twice as much. It's only one stat point better, but right. That's it's real important that your flyers have attack, because if they're one attack flyers, then generally they're not really that much uh, of a pressure point, I guess. No, I th- no, I yeah, I agree, and maybe that's the whole thing. But the fact that Primeval Plover is like theoretically getting at least a little bit, giving something else a, a plus one, plus two buff. While Val- I, I guess what's surprising to me is Valkyrie Militant is sort of such an underwhelming card to me, but it always does okay. So the fact that you do get two attack out of Primeval Plover, even though it's not on one body. I think the thing that is hurting all of these cards is the ability for them to be removed in combat. Yes, because that typically has disastrous results for the person with with the primeval plover. It turns a good attack into a, a chump attack, and you just lose your unit for free against like a shock. So it can be it can be rough to rely on the buffs, and especially in a twist format, you twist that health away. If a primeval plover gets killed or bounced, or if your unit gets bounced, that it's dead. So it's that that kind of temporary buff is a, is a little bit rough in this format, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, they're they're worse against units like um, that Rakano three two weapon with Warcries in the format. 
-hmm. and that's pretty good against one power units. Yes. There's also Iron Hook. Um, there's a few other weapons, I think. And so the units with very low attack can be quite bad against uh, against cards like that. So uh, speaking of uh, five-cost cards that aren't doing very well, uh, my card of the week this week is Stone Scar Outfitter, which is the five shadow two three that gives your other units plus one attack and you can shift it for four. So this card is interesting because this card is a card that was doing quite well for us in set six and has really dropped off a cliff in this most recent format. Um, what is it? What is it? Background rate? Like 1.6, 1.7. Yeah, so it's still not, I would say, a bad card. Not bad, but in five-color mid, you don't want to be playing average cards. You want to be playing good cards. You know, it's, so it's a, a 1.5, 1.6. Well, in the last format, it was the number one shadow common. Yeah, and, over two. Yeah, and so it's not even close to sort of where it was. So Ben and I were sort of discussing a little bit about what maybe has caused its drop-off. And a card that came up in the conversation is Lethri Intimidator. Uh, you know, the set five all-star, which is the four shadow, two four, with empower, give your other units plus one attack. And so it has kind of a similar effect. It's one cheaper. It has a, a bit better of a, of a stat line, but it's actually doing way better in the sheet. So it's above a two right now yeah and the the card also has a uh, pledge on it mm -hmm. which is a form of fixing it's not like great fixing or anything but it is a little bit more fixing for decks uh so yeah it, it's it's blocking the three threes that the outfitter can't and it can block on turn four which the outfitter can't uh which is pretty interesting because like the Stone Scar Outfitter just always gives its buff. So the, the buff works on defense for the Outfitter as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Intimidator, uh, the buff does not really work very well on, on defense because you, it's an empower trigger. So it kind of only works on offense. It's, it's just real interesting that that card should be doing so much better. It's like a full point better on background rate. So I think that's really interesting to think about why that, that might be so. If you have some ideas on that other than what we've talked about here, definitely bring them up in the Discord. Yeah, because what we're thinking is like that leads me to believe that it's you know it's either the pledge or the stat line that's really sort of giving Lethra Intimidator the a boost. And so then we were kind of looking at some other cards, and another card that caught our eye was Watchful Aminara, which is the three power two four in time and. Lethrai Intimidator is actually doing better than that. Yeah, yeah, much better even, yeah. And, you know, as as we were talking about sort of with the first Frost Shaman and comparing it to Court Mage, adding one power to a card really can hurt its effectiveness. And yet that sort of correlation isn't holding up with Lethrai Intimidator. So it's really interesting sort of how these cards play off each other and how sort of messy the story it makes because you can say, oh, the reason Lethra Intimidator is better than Stone Scar Outfitter is it has a better body and it's a little cheaper. But then you're like, oh, well, the reason Lethra Intimidator is better than Watchful Aminara is that it has a better ability. 
but the ability isn't as good as the <laughs> yeah, Stunts exactly. Car Outfitter. Um, and it's a lot better. It's like a full point better than both of those cards. And Watchful yeah. Omenar is a really good card in the format. Blocks all the strangers. Stone Scar Outfitter was very good in the previous format. Buffs all the strangers. Uh, it's very strange that the Intimidator is rising above both of those in such a dramatic fashion. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if any of our viewers have any uh, insight into why that might be. All right, so now we'll go to seven win run breakdown. Ben, take it away. So uh, we have a long-standing data collection project here at Farming Eternal. Uh, our listeners send us their seven win drafts, uh, and we compile them and do data analysis on them. There, you have uh, two main methods of sending us your list. One, you can do the traditional method of emailing us the list at farmingeternal at gmail.com. Uh, or the second method is to go onto our Discord, and we have a dedicated forum for that. There's some advantages to using the Discord. You get feedback from multiple people, not just me. And that that's a pretty cool experience, I would say, an easy way to break into the format and a good conversation starter for the various different decks that people have. They're... they're like every seven win deck is a story and it's fun to have a conversation about that the the story that your deck is telling one of the benefits we get from that is to do some data analysis and we can tell you things like we've been talking about all day today where you know court mage is better than first frost shaman or lethra intimidator is better than stone scar outfitter that's a result of this data analysis we do and it depends on your guys's contributions uh so one of the things we like to do to uh, reward our submitters in uh, is to uh, read off the names of the contributors in the podcast, and so we will do that now. So we had uh, 24 lists this week from 15 listeners. There was a little bit of a fall off at the end of the month because people were masters already and were saving up for the next month, I think. But with only two days into the month, uh, we already have a good good amount of lists this week, and we have actually crested a thousand total lists. This week, so we have over a thousand seven-win lists submitted by listeners, which is just a, a crazy number. Thank you all for your submissions. Uh, this week, in particular, we'd like to thank Agent Dynamo, Ben Grasher, Kalebovich, Darth Herman Two with three lists, Gatasujo, Jedi EJ, Cassandrath, Mercurio Blue, Another Ship, Raven Dragon, Rofer with three lists, Esrich Zero Two One Five, Spiffy Man. Tempest Dragon King, and XI550. Seriously, thank you guys for your submissions. It makes this data project work, uh, and we really appreciate everything that, uh, every list that comes in. Shall we move on to our main topic? Sure thing. Farming Eternal listeners, we have a guest this week, Gatosujo, from the Misplay podcast. Uh, How's it going? It's going pretty well. Um, Thanks for having me on. You know, we've had our our friendly rivalry. I know that we are officially the number two podcast at the Misplay now. Yeah, I I think that that's that's fine. Like I, we we proved it right, but I, we we knew how it was beforehand, and and now we have like evidence to support our theory, which is right. You're the much more data driven podcast. Yeah, exactly. It's important to have you know it's it's good to have theories, but you want to have evidence to back them up. So do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners and let us know what the misplay is all about and. Sure. My name is Gato Sujo in game, G A T O S U J O. I'm one half of the Misplay podcast with Jason or Parmalee in game. And we have 
a relative a small podcast about the kind of the dumb things we do in game and a little bit about what's going on in the eternal world and a little bit about our perspective on how we try to develop our game and that's kind of it we try to have a good time yeah i i really like your podcast because of how open you guys are about you know making mistakes and learning from them and I think that that's really important and something that people in general just don't do enough of. People don't don't want to have made mistakes and that causes them to not see the opportunities to make themselves better. And I think that's a big leak that a lot of people have. I like that you guys are kind of counter to that. That's a that's kind of our our big angle where we see our niche because we know, you know, we're not we're strictly not the best players. that that doesn't mean that we don't have anything to contribute, I think the vantage point of a more average level player, I think still gives a lot of perspective on how we can grow as players because we like winning. We try to win, you know, by cultivating a a mentality of learning from your mistakes, it makes it hopefully easier to one objectively see what you're doing and then to not make those same mistakes again. Because if, if you get rid of a lot of the ego that comes around, Oh, I need to be the best. It becomes easier to improve when you're able to kind of, separate your ego from the learning process for sure i i think it's a much more important result than the winner loss in any one game is like what you had what you got out of that game and are you a better player before or after you learn a lot more from the games you lose than the games you win because the games you lose you're you're more like self-critical and more you know what went wrong in that game where a game you won you might have made a bunch of mistakes and you kind of anti-learn from that game because it it reinforces the the good feeling so i I really like that you guys you're just really you have a good mentality good approach to the game good approach to gaming in general so i'm I'm glad to have you guys on uh or half of the midplay misplay podcast anyway this week cool well thanks again for having me and you can find us at the misplay on twitter if you have email questions, we have info at themisplay.com. And we have a Discord that you can find a link to in our show notes of most shows. And our show comes out on Tuesdays. Yeah, and you also, you've been doing a little bit of streaming recently as well, right? Under the Misplay uh, account? That's true. Um, we're working, we just started our, our work year. So our schedule, we don't really, we're never going to have a set schedule. Um, but it is something that we're starting to pursue a little bit more personally i'm hoping to get to a point where i'm streaming about once a week for the for the show yeah that would be great like i i'm in a similar situation when you when you have a full-time job it's kind of hard to to have all of this stuff going on at the same time but i i've watched your stream a couple times and it's been very good so the first topic that we wanted to talk about was some uh in-game play situations we often talk about card evaluation or the drafting process uh, on the show, but something we don't talk as much about is what happens once you have your deck and you're playing your games. And I think that that is just as important, if not more so, than the cards you ended up drafting. You can certainly win more with a bad deck played well than with a good deck played poorly, I think, in, in general. So uh, we wanted to go over a few scenarios here that are very common in the game, and we'll try and keep them uh, as simple as possible. And the images that we'll be discussing will be available uh, in the show notes and on our website uh, and in the the Discord. It all links together. 
So if, if you want to follow along with us in a, some kind of visual media, that, that's available. So the, the first situation that we're talking about here is uh, our opponent has a, a couple tutus. It's very common to have strangers in this format. So our opponent has two of them. And we have a Ravenous Thorn Beast, which is a 3-3-4-3 and no power available. Uh, our opponent attacks us with his tutus. What do we do? In general, I would block here. You know, I know you guys, you on the show, you guys have talked about before how the value of a combat trick can largely come to kind of how much you're trading up or down. Three drops true, is yeah. better than a two, but I'm still not going to lose. I don't think I'm going to lose the game or lose sleep over losing my Ravenous Thorn Beast over to like a Finest Hour or a Daring Maneuver or something like that. Sure, sure. Some kind of combat trick. And if you had, like, let's let's make it even simpler and say you had a stranger. Like, if you had a stranger in this situation, you're blocking in almost all situations. Like, yeah, if I they attack you true. with two strangers and you have a stranger, you would block? Generally, yes. Yeah, I Unless think that's... I have a really good reason not to. I, I think that is a 100% block. Uh, because if they want to use a combat trick to kill my stranger, I, I don't care about that at all. Right. Now, let's make this a little bit more complicated. And let's say that you have a conflagrate in your hand. And maybe no other reasonable plays in the next few turns. W would you do anything differently if they attacked you with their two strangers and you had a 3-3 three, three with a conflagrate in hand, but no power to cast it right now? No power to cast it. I'm probably still just blocking. I don't love the idea of conflagrating a Rakano stranger. Uh, so you wouldn't like pass to the next turn, see if they do it again, block, if they use a combat trick, kill it in response? I don't think so. And the, we're talking about the first image, so I'm staring at the Razor Quill in my hand. Yeah, so then so I was going to add that. the Razor going to blank them both anyway. Yeah, so the the next part of this scenario I was going to like test you on there is, so you had three power to cast the Thorn Beast. They attacked you. We would maybe attack or block, but let's say that we have a Razor Quill in our hand with the power to cast it the next turn. Then we have a trade-off of, well, do I want to pass the turn and hold up Conflagrate to try and get their combat trick? Or do you just want to play the Razor Quill? And that's a develop move versus a like t uh, card advantage move with uh, holding up the Conflagrate. So if, if you had... So again, your opponent's attacking you with two two twos. You have a 3-3 to block with, and you have a Razor Quill in your hand. But no no power right now. Razor Quills is the 2-4. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, you would block, and then with a plan of just playing a Razor Quill and blocking again next turn, That's that would be the approach you would take most of the time? Yeah, especially if my opponent uses the combat trick to beat the Thorn Beast. I would have to give my opponent credit for s some kind of something here. Like Otherwise, they're just losing a 2-2. Uh, for getting two damage into our face. So I assume we will see some kind of combat trick or granite coin or something along those lines. Uh, but you would just block with the intention of maybe having them play their combat trick in this relatively low value situation. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you just develop again the next turn, use all of your power, play the Razor Quill. Now, let's say we're on that next turn, right? So they played a Daring Maneuver or something. They, they attack you again with their tutus into your razor quill. Are you blocking again? Like the more times that that happens, would you would that incentivize you to maybe wait until you have the conflagrate available? I'm probably still inclined to block. If razor quill is the last unit in my hand, I might let that attack happen once. Sure, sure. Um, conflagrate... Or the last playable one anyway, yeah. Yeah. 
Conflagrate kind of Conflagrate. It's an interesting card to have here. I think it's more. It would be easier to convince me to char for the two for one than to conflagrate, because the conflagrate's value goes up the longer the game goes. I agree with that. Yeah. Now, would if you had char instead of conflagrate, would you have passed turn four doing nothing with the intention of charring, or would you no. still develop the razor quill? You still, still develop, develop the razor, razor quill, and then. I, on maybe the next turn, you would have power available in your char, and then you might not block if they attack you with the strangers. I, th I think that's interesting. I say something all the time, which is always develop, and I think your plan here aligns with that pretty strongly, where you're just looking to like play things, force your opponent to do stuff, and proceed. I, I think one advantage of blocking in this situation your opponent attacks you with two two twos, and you just block with your three three. One advantage of that 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 people don't really think about too much is if they use a combat trick, they're probably not playing another creature. Right. So they maybe that's their whole turn to kill your thorn beast, and then they still just have two two twos, and you play your razor quill, and that's a pretty good situation for you. I I think that's true. Um, you know, star staring at this first scenario of the two strangers and the thorn beast looks very much like an early game situation to me. Yeah, if yeah. you're talking about this situation when you're at nine life, I think then things start to change a little bit. Let's say the nine life situation. You're not dying right now, but you're getting, you know, close. Would that make you more inclined or less inclined to block? I'm still blocking, beast? but the the idea of holding up something like Conflagrate or char in the late game against the combat trick becomes more appealing to me rather than playing a unit you know i guess you'd also consider we might have more power so we could do something like razor quill and char or and conflagrate right or maybe um, conflagrate both of them or something or even like conflagrating that. on your turn like yeah you know i'm willing to maybe trade my conflagrate for the two for one stranger in a combat trick as opposed to and then i'm ahead on board and now maybe i win the race i think the scenario that we're talking about here is like you say, most relevant maybe in the very early turns of the game because that's when your power is most constrained. When when you have when like the decisions you make most strongly impact whether uh, you exit that developing stage ahead or even or or whatnot, whether you get further behind. Now, one little tweak that I wanted to put on this scenario is let's say that instead of a ravenous thorn beast. Uh, basically vanilla three three for three let's say you have lethride dire beast which is a three three lifesteal for three. uh and your opponent is again attacking you with two 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 strangers and let's say you have your conflagrate and razor quill in your hand what do you do in this scenario would you still block if you just have lifesteal on it on top of your ravenous thorn beast i want to say yes i become a little bit more inclined to not race or to to not block since not the, block, yeah. the uh, the dire beast is so much higher value than the thorn beast, um, but then I then I think you start considering the the makeup of your deck. Like if my goal is to stay alive longer, you know, say they have something, you know, something terrible that could happen. They attack with their two twos, you don't do anything, and you get retributioned. Like, ah, yes, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, I think a lot of people will attack with retribution in this situation. And I think I, I think just in general, people probably do not block enough. Uh, so they will let a creature through thinking that it's just an onslaught 
enabled attack, but the the reasoning of they're just attacking for onslaught it should not result in you not blocking. <laughs> right. Right. Because if, if, if you block and all they it, have yeah. is retribution, then you're still getting a two for one. And that's exactly. probably better than you can get with that's probably better than what you're gonna get in the late game anyway. And I think that would be a I think that'd be a pretty big mistake from your opponent. I agree, um, yeah. Because like a three three lifesteal is nice, but it's not gonna be game breaking. It's still a pretty small unit on the ground in the early game. I I agree with that. I, and I think it, like I was you're bringing me around to your position here a little bit because I was my plan when a, my opponent ta- attacks me with two two twos and I have a three three lifesteal is to just attack them back and race. But if their plan is retribution, then that becomes a little bit worse of a plan, I would say. Now I I would think if they were attacking these they have to have something and because the the lifesteal makes it so the attack is just like super punished. Mm. Like we gain a life for killing their creature. So I feel like they have to have something here. And it might be something like granite coin where maybe that's an okay attack then with granite coin. But yeah, retribution. That's that's interesting because I was going to say just take it and swing back. I don't hate racing either. That's interesting. And are you okay with them using retribution here on your three three? Maybe. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I it, again, it kind of depends on the texture of my deck. How 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 good a unit is Lethra Dire Beast in my unit suite? You know, if I have something like even the the two two flyer with Berserk, the Dark Umbran Voidbringer. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would rather my Dire Beast get uh, retribution than my flyer. Yeah, yeah, and maybe, yeah, if you had it in your hand, that's kind of weird because you need the unit to attack first, so you kind of want to leave it alive. Uh, So this is actually turning out to be a little bit more of an interesting scenario than I thought to begin with here because I think I would take it, but if I wasn't thinking about this any more than I have already, I would have taken it, and then if they played something big... Uh, I would maybe hold back to conflagrate to try and get the trick that I, we absolutely know that they have, mm-hmm. or race if I could race. Like if they just play a three-three or something, maybe I conflagrate the three-three and attack and gain three life, and just be a little more aggressive there. That's that's making me think about it with this retribution because I do this all the time. I take the I take the four damage, and then they cast retribution on my creature. But I'm not sure whether what what situation I'm happier with because. You know, I, I have blocked and gotten granite coined in the Thorn Beast scenario. I'm, I'll block all the time with a three. Sure. I, d- I really don't hate racing. I yeah. think racing has a lot more complexities than a simpler board. Yeah. And yeah. so even, you know, say say worst case scenario, you get granite coined, that kind of bites, or you get retributioned. The board is still a little bit simpler when you play the Razor Quill on the following turn. That's true, yeah. And, you know, I... I get lost in a lot of the complexities sometimes, and so it helps me to feel like there's a simpler board. No, that, I think that makes sense. Ra- racing is racing is just so complicated for for all of the reasons of you know not only do you have to consider combat tricks, you have to consider how much damage can you take. There there are so many more unknowns that you have to guess for in racing. Where if you force the action with the block, it gives you more information on how your game plan needs to develop later. I, I think that that's true. I think that that's true. If the more it matters that the dire beast lives, the more I would not block. Sure. And uh, I think if it is, if there, if I have other plays in my hand, 
if there's other stuff going on, um, the more backups I have for this, like the more I'll want them to retribution the dire beast instead of like a corrupted behemoth that I might be playing in some future turn. So I think I think you're bringing me around your position here. Really, it's retribution that makes me <laughs> makes me agree with you. If they were not injustice, I would uh, I would take it and erase for sure, just because the razor quill is such a good follow up. But uh, I mean, does your I, position change that much if they attack? You take four and then they conflagrate your dire beast. They would have conflagrated beforehand. Like, what if their play is conflagrate? Like, they would just conflagrate my three three and attack. It, That's fair. If I if I block, th- their play has to be some kind of a buff spell. And I don't know. I think if I knew they had conflagrate and I knew that they had a pump spell and they were just trying to get the pump spell in, then maybe it works out better for you if you block and they daring maneuver and then you develop. Yeah, that's that's interesting because then the conflagrate doesn't kill your razor quill. But I, I think I would still force them to have the actual removal spell rather than the pump spell to deal mm. with my life stealing creature, because I think against the average opponent, they will just attack in this situation, assume that you block and they play their trick and you lose your guy, and they may have no other plan than that. And if you just take the four damage, hit them for three, and play a razor quill, they're kind of dead at that point. Sure. Um, because then the next turn you have your conflagrate to blow out their removals their uh, their pump spell they'll probably hold back to block the next turn and then things are going to go really bad for them uh, and they'll hold up power and maybe it's an expensive trick like high alert and you the, the game is just over if you conflagrate uh, their high alert so I think I think in most situations I would race but I, I do definitely see the retribution uh, play being something that should cause me to think about going the other direction. So let's flip this around a little bit and say your opponent has the Dire Beast, a 3-3 life-stealing creature, and they attack into your two strangers. This is very a very common situation in uh, five color because you'll have a lot of strangers. So they attack you with their 3-3 life-stealer and you have your two 2-2 two, two strangers and a conflagrate in hand with no power to cast it. Are you going to double block there? Probably. But the the texture like the long term game plan of my deck really matters to me in that case. If my goal is to continue curving out and beat down, you know, I may be looking at holding the conflagrate to remove the dire beast, and I'll just admit, figure out that I have to do an extra three damage over the course of the game. Yeah, because you're not we're not racing uh, dire beasts, right? Right. Uh, so I have to have a long a more long term game plan, right? If I had three strangers and they had a dire beast, I would just triple block. Right. Do you agree with that? I think so. Um, yeah, because the opponent... Hylord's pretty bad for you in that case. Not really, right? You lose your... Th- you still kill the Dire Beast and oh, the High Alert and lose your three strangers. Yeah. It's a three for two, but like High Alert and Dire Beast are better than strangers once they're on the board. Also true. So, like, and I think, honestly, I can see even, like, medium-skilled opponents attacking a Dire Beast into three strangers because they will just assume that you would double block, right? Mm-hmm. And then their high alert, you know, kills your guys, or a conflagrate, right? You, you block with two, they conflagrate one of your guys, they kill the other one, and they just don't even see the possibility of you triple blocking. And I would just, I, I'd just triple block there, no, no question. Um, but in this scenario, I... I can't imagine that my my opponent would attack me with a 3-3 Lifestealer into trading for a stranger. 
I just yeah, most of the time that attack that attack looks bad to me. I don't think that's an attack I make most of the time unless I have a really good plan. Yeah, I think on what that I would dire B side. <laughs> exactly. So like it doesn't really have to be much. It has to be it wouldn't be granite coin. It would be something like daring maneuver. I've had people uh, retribution a stranger in this sort of situation. They'll attack me with their 3-3 lifestealer and retribution my stranger. And that is not a good play. <laughs> so I'll let, I'll let my opponents do that. But like, I think we can't afford to double block in this situation because it's just so likely that they have a trick. So my question would then be, assuming you don't double block, right? And they hit you for three and gain three life. You have your two strangers and a razor quill in your hand, right? Do you develop the razor quill or do you hold up the conflagrate? And do you attack? I guess th those are all factors there. If my opponent taps out, well, it depends on their follow up after the attack. Like if they attack and then let's say play they another play unit, another three three or something, sure, like that, that continues to blank my strangers. Sure. Um, you know, then I'm holding back. I'm probably still developing razor quill. Sure. But I'm, I think I'm that's actually. To, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I'm starting to look for the opportunity of when I'm going to conflagrate the dire beast because I can't race it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for sure. And hopefully get a combat trick as well. Is that your plan in general? I think so. I'm. I depending as the race develops further, I become more likely to just if I catch them without any open power, and I need, and I feel like it's important enough to remove the dire beast, I will sacrifice my turn on my turn to conflagrate the dire beast. Yeah, I as I think as your life total gets lower uh, and lower and lower, then you have to do things like that. Mm -hmm. But I would I don't think I would make that play above let's say 10 life i would have to be in pr a pretty bad situation before i let them like if they are aggressively attacking into me they'll continue to aggressively attack into me and my conflagrate will get double value and that that's i will i will accept that right sure so i i do i do think i agree with developing the razor quill and depending on what they do, then maybe holding up Conflagrate because the Razor Quill gives you such good blocks. Like yep. two two twos and a two four versus a three three, it pretty much doesn't matter what combat trick they have. Sure. They're not gonna be very happy with the result of a multi-block in that situation. Right. There's a reasonable chance at some point I'm looking at like twist the Razor Quill, like I'm going to trade with the Dire Beast yeah. and then have the Conflagrate ready. Yeah, and would you, um, okay, so let's say just in general, right? They have their dire beast. You have your twisted razor quill. You block. Do you pass in that situation, or do you block and then conflagrate? Are you willing to to do the trade in general? I think so. Yeah, I I pretty much always just block and pass, and then if they do something, then respond with the conflagrate. And I think that's fine. right. I mean, the the goal is to get the person to act before you, right? So I think that's really good. Is there, are there any uh, like things that you would add to this that would cause you to make uh, dramatically different uh, decisions? The point in the game really st really does matter. Uh, yeah. you know, I agree. If, if they're if they have one card in hand and we have and this is our hand in the late game, you know, again the decisions change. Um, I I think we uh, we talked about this on our show once, but not good at always knowing every single card that I can be playing around. So I try to kind of cheat and guess how much damage am I willing to play around being able to take. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think of it as like how much hidden damage does my opponent have in the race versus how much hidden damage do I have in the race. And if I think my number is higher and can kill them sooner, I'll keep the race going. But if I think, oh, I'm going to get heretics cannon, heretic cannoned, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, then I'm I'm trying to formulate a plan to beat the cannon. You definitely play the game. There are different macro decisions that you make, certainly, based on whether you have cannon in your deck or not, and whether your opponent may have cannon, because that is a extremely swingy effect in uh, these type of scenarios. Well, even, like, there are other cards like that, too, like the um, the give a guy flying berserk for a turn. Oh, uh, yeah, death from above, yeah. Sure. I don't I don't think I like that card, but that's another either. example <laughs> of... It deals, yeah. it deals a lot of damage really quickly. Yep. Um, and There's since... Also... <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, that's fine. It, it's, it's a really dangerous card. There's also things like Frost Wave in the format, mm-hmm. uh, which are very swingy. So th- your willingness to take damage in like the middle game to knock you down uh, should be different than your willingness to take damage in the early game, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Like I envisioned all of these scenarios that we're talking about in the like first five turns. Because sure. it, that, that's, those are the scenarios where you're constrained, where, where you can't do two things in one turn as much. So, and then in the late game, like people have exhausted more of their resources, you know, more about what kind of things they have in their deck. So I think that that's, that's a good factor to consider, certainly, when you're thinking about these. Uh, Cool. So I think one of the things we wanted to talk about a little bit here was multi-blocking. So the next scenario I I am proposing for you to, to think about here is your opponent has, it's just a huge, like, board stall, but... The most important creatures on your opponent's side are two Tremor Shockers, which are just 6-6 six, six, no abilities. And then they have, you know, some some small creatures probably, some strangers, some random uh, two and three drops. But they're attacking you with one of their Tremor Shockers. Okay, so a 6-6 six, six creature is attacking. And we also have just a bunch of little guys. We have a Corrupted Behemoth, which is the 4-6 for 5. We have two Sauropod Crashers, which are 3-3s. Three and we have three strangers. So they're attacking us with the 6-6. Six, six. We have a 4-6, two 3-3s, three, and three 2-2s. Two, what would you do in this scenario? It, in general, let's say they have one card in their hand, and you don't have anything relevant. You're top-decking and just playing whatever you have. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm losing badly is what I feel. Really? I'm probably going to take the contrary to what you would look at. Sure. Uh, are they top decking too? I forgot what you said about. They this. have one card in their hand. They drew a card, and they—that's the card that they have. But now they're attacking you. Previously, they were not, and they didn't attack with both tremor shockers. They only attacked with one. So our attacks are not looking very good. I would say. Fair enough. I kind of like the corrupted behemoth sauropod crasher block. Okay. It's a little bit in that same vein of make them have the combat trick. Sure. I know, I know there are some really there are ugly scenarios where like high alert does some really bad things to us in this any i mean any removal spell Uh, sure so what do you think about uh throwing in a stranger there as well Uh, i'll tell you that uh a lot of the combat tricks in this format are plus three plus three we have barrel through uh we have daring maneuver which is plus two plus two and we have high alert which is plus three plus three there's also mighty strikes but that typically only gets played in multicolor decks, and let's say they don't have Mighty Strikes power available. Sure. Yeah, I don't hate the extra block with the Stranger. So in this scenario, you'd, you're you proposing to your opponent that you will either lose the 3-3 uh, and the 2-2, or the the uh, Behemoth for their Tremor Shocker. Mm. And you're okay with that in general? I think so. What about, would you ever go bigger? Like, 
if you're already blocking, if you're already doing extra blocks, would you ever do the extra sauropod instead? I, so my instinct uh, with this attack was to just block with every single creature. <laughs> uh, now, it's possible that what I should do is block with every creature except the behemoth, because that puts 12 attack into them, and I don't think it matters what they have at, at that point. I mean, if they have a conflagrate to kill both crashers or something, they still lose their guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tend to, against like a single attack with clearly a combat trick in their hand, clearly they have some kind of combat trick. I would tend to just block with everything. <laughs> like, I I don't know what they could have, but whatever it is, if I block with everything, they will. Uh, their trick will not be that great. Like, and a lot of times people will cast the trick anyway. Yeah. Like, I block with everything here. My opponent high alerts, like, 90% of the time. And what that high alert does is kill a sauropod crasher. Uh, and the, I'm 100% okay with that. Uh, they just feel like they have to cast the combat trick because they put themselves in this situation. Right. And that just makes things way better. Now, if if they had no cards in their hand, I think a block with, like, crasher, stranger, stranger is pretty good but that just means that that was a terrible attack by our opponent so crasher stranger stranger is really good because then they can only kill two of those Uh, so they only remove five attack and health from our board and they lose a six six which is the biggest creature on the field so i i would hope that our opponent would not attack into that sort of situation and if they have a card in their hand i would not block that way and lose all three to a combat trick uh that would be i would say very greedy (laughs) Sure. Now, what happens? So, do you think? Are you on the side of your initial answer was like Behemoth, Crasher, and maybe a Stranger? Uh, my initial answer was lose to the plus three plus three combat tricks. So okay, that's not a great answer. <laughs> okay, fair that, enough. That's the kind of thing that would like happen on the show, and I'd be like, oh, I could have blocked with the Stranger. There's my misplay for the week. Yeah, and I like there's. They they could have like double trick. They could have withstand. They could have bottoms up. The more they have stuff like that, frost wave maybe. Ugh, there, there's just a lot of things that they could have. Mm-hmm. So so that is a thing that causes me to want to just jam everything in there and uh, see what they have because whatever they have, they'll play it and then they'll lose their tremor shocker. How do you feel about if they do? What if they don't play their combat trick and you've blocked with everything and they take something like sauropod sauropod? I'm probably okay with that. They still, like, their other Crasher, or sorry, their other Tremor Shocker is still blocked by Corrupted Behemoth plus Stranger mm-hmm. in a profitable way. I, I'm kind of okay with that because, like, those Crashers are probably not doing a whole lot anyway. Maybe if they have a bunch of 2-2s, then the Crashers can block the 2-2s. Two I don't and know. By that logic, if, how many, like, I know that I know it's, like, some <laughs> random small guys, yeah. but say, like, each Stranger is blanked and... Yeah, one like if they have two strangers that are blocked and guys. a bunch of one ones that are blocked by our two twos, and yeah, I I still think I so the the how I approach this scenario is that I know for a fact they have a combat trick. Okay, like in my opinion, they have a combat trick because otherwise this is a bad attack. Uh, it trades their tremor shocker for our corrupted behemoth, or their tremor shocker for a crasher and a stranger, and that's just not good in this situation. It doesn't matter what they have. Mm-hmm. So I believe, uh, and I, the combat trick I would in general be playing around is plus three, plus three. Uh, so then like a conservative block that deals with that is Behemoth, Crasher, Stranger. 
because that puts uh, nine damage into their six six. Right. Uh, but like, and that also plays around like a removal spell like conflagrate to kill just the crasher maybe. Right. But I just like there's there's so many things they could have that I would just jam everything in there. I think in almost every situation, and this is the sort of scenario where I lose to. Uh, like that give your unit deadly <laughs> spell. That, that spell kills me every single time because I do blocks like this where I just block with everything. And I would lose my whole board to the giving that guy deadly. But there yeah. might be some things like spiteful strike that would be extremely bad or display of knowledge. Like mm-hmm. display of knowledge does a number on a block of behemoth crasher stranger because they just kill your behemoth and you're in bad shape. <laughs> you don't have enough attack to kill their guy. Sure. Whereas, I mean, that's like yeah. that's kind of that's one of the interesting things about talking about stuff like this is that no no one decision is ever going to beat everything. And so on some yeah. level, you're like, what do I? What am I okay losing to? And I I have to be okay losing to the give the unit deadly because I'm just always going to lose to that spell. It does, it's just always going to happen. And I've it's happened to me twice probably in my entire lifetime playing this game. And it, it was very good for my opponent, but the rest of the times they didn't have it. So that's fine. Yeah, my my first draft <laughs> with that uh with that card like really early in like 6.0 format, I was in Praxis and I had. Corrupted Behemoth, the shifted dude that gives him double damage. Oh, yeah. Cover Fire Marksman, yeah. Yep, and then killed my opponent in a really close race with two of those. Give my unit deadly. I never drafted that card again, but (laughs) early in the format, it felt really good. So, I don't know. I block with everything. You block for value, and, you know, maybe they have a combat trick, maybe they don't. Uh, What if they attack you with both Tremor Shockers? And let's say they have, like, a 3-3 and some 2-2s back. So this is why I feel like we're, I actually think we're pretty far behind in this. Because yeah. even even if they take the one for one and just trade Behemoth for Tremor Shocker, now they still have the largest unit on board with, and this is before going on to both attacking. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they have the largest unit on board. Some portion of our board is still blanked and their attacks just start getting better and better as the game goes on as Tremor Shocker remains the largest unit. Yeah, I agree. But like the... That it's Tremor Shocker was moderately intentional from me because it lines up so well against our blocks. Mm. Like it trades for both 3-3s if we block with both 3-3s. Or it um, trades for all 3-2-2s, that sort of thing. Or just in general trades with your behemoth. And then the other one is still kind of hard to deal with. Mm. But yeah, so I I think we are disadvantaged here. But I think that we're not necessarily losing because the boards are so big and yeah. i feel in general like i can outplay my opponents when we're in situations like this because i think in general an opponent who draws like a conflagrate is just going to conflagrate my sauropod crashers and it just is not going to matter too much whereas i'll conflagrate their roosting warhawk or whatever and and then it'll be a board stall for a long time right so yeah, I, I do I do agree that we're not doing great because it's specifically Tremor Shockers. I think if they were Cannon Bearers or something like that, Cannon Bearers in this format, mm-hmm. it would be significantly better for us. That's it. I, the extra power is, <laughs> makes it yeah. a really bad attack if you're attacking with five power into this board. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because then they're just 
like they have nothing. They're they're just going to lose both their guys and kill like a stranger each or something. Right. Uh, that that is way worse for them. Whereas Tremor Shocker is a little harder for us to deal with. Sure. And I, you know, losing losing is a relative term. I think maybe I don't necessarily think this game is lost and we need to hit the concede button yet. But <laughs> right. I do I do feel behind on this board. Oh sure, sure. It's always bad when you when they have the bigger creature, but I think good blocking play can have good results. You want to talk about both attacking? Oh sure. Let, let's say they both attack. So in in this scenario, you have you know a reasonable block of like Crasher Stranger Stranger on one, Behemoth Stranger on another, something like that, and that kills both of them. Would that be a reasonable play? Do you think? Or we we had our original like behemoth crasher stranger that's does the nine damage to one of the tremor shockers and then crasher stranger stranger does seven to the other one and we lose two of those units would you do a block like that would you like over block one and not block the other one chump block the other one what what are you thinking about here uh assuming they have like okay blocks for your little guys and we can't just take it and race or something like that right I like putting enough blocks to kill both and forcing them to make the decision of which set they're going to play their trick on. You know, I I like your idea of forcing the issue of overblocking on one so that you kind of choose which one they save. And I suppose then the right idea is to overblock to try to protect the behemoth as best as possible. But there's, I think there's a good chance that the behemoth is just dead. That it's probably the first thing that they would kill because it's the biggest thing. But yeah, the, the idea of putting both of their units dead and then that being a way to sort of negate a combat trick Mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. It's unfortunate that if they have a combat trick, I think so. Honestly, I think a lot of people would attack with no combat trick in that situation with the two six sixes. They just feel like it's probably a good attack. So they do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't think, I don't think I would necessarily put a combat trick in their hand, but if they did, like we're not looking real great, I would say, uh, after this turn. Like we would have probably just something like Crash or Stranger left after the combat trick, and they would have Tremor Shocker and their little guys. So that's kind of rough. So are you in general? Would you be willing to put yourself into that situation, assuming they have a combat trick? Would you tend towards like putting both their guys dead and losing a fair number of guys to a combat trick? I think so. You could maybe convince me to do something silly like all of our small guys on one take six and lose a bunch of the little guys and hope to recover by twisting Behemoth somehow. Yeah, I did um, put Behemoth in specifically because of the twist ability and how good it is at recovering health. Uh, and then if you get a couple twists in with the behemoth, suddenly you can trade with the tremor shocker straight up. That's uh, true, but it like depending on how many times you're willing to twist the behemoth, um, there are only so many times you can let six through. And yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like if they have a three three on board, you're kind of limited to twisting twice. Uh, that's that's true. Yeah, with our current uh, board position. So you would like put everything but the behemoth on one, take the six, probably do some twisting. I think that's reasonable. That plays around most tricks as well. And I think we're not in great shape here. 
especially yeah. if they have some kind of combat trick. It kind but of I think... silly to only attack with one in retrospect. Like, if you're going to yeah. attack with one, why not attack with both? Yeah, I think that that's the case. And can you draw any conclusions because they only attacked with one creature? I think, you know, maybe it's a retribution or something like that. It could be something like that in, instead of a combat trick. Because I feel like if you had a combat trick, you should attack with both. And it might... Um, does that give you any insight into what kind of a thing they might have or how good of a player they might be and what you should be playing around because they only attacked with one? You know, the, <laughs> I don't uh, know. That attack with one and hold one back seems like my level of play. Yeah. And now that I've thought about it, I'm like, well, if I'm going to attack with one, I should attack with both because I, I'm going to be the one who's going to be like, all right, I attacked with one and then I like lost a race or something like that because I wasn't aggressive enough with them. I, I think it is a very passive play to do that. And I think, I don't think you're in the minority. I think a lot of people would attack with just one, whether they had a combat trick or not, whether they had anything and anything specific, they would just attack with one. And I think, I, I do think that that's a little bit of passive play and a little, points a little bit towards certain types of things that might be happening now rather than necessarily just a combat trick. Sure. I could also, I've made attacks like this before in the interest of, again, simplifying the board for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if that's not, you know, strictly the most correct play on some level, I would almost be okay just trading my first tremor shocker for three of the strangers. Yeah. Like there, there, is, a, things, there is a strength life numbers easier. factor. And it reduces, uh, you know, assuming your opponent has, let's say, three or four little guys versus seven or eight. <laughs> let's say they don't have like a full board where they're just swarming around you either way. Mm-hmm. But if they have a few little guys, then maybe those few little guys can start attacking if you lose your Corrupted Behemoth. Yeah. And I think that's good. But I think I think that play is even better when you jam with both because it reduces your opponent's options. They can't like get some sort of okay block this turn and then get a sort of okay block next turn on your attack with a Tremor Shocker again. Right. Uh, because like if I go Crasher Stranger Stranger and you kill two of those, I can still do Crasher Stranger Stranger again next turn, but I yep. can't do both of those if you do it all at once. So anyway, I, I think that's cool. I think that's that was an interesting scenario. Do you want to talk about this next scenario? Is that interesting enough? I think so. Uh, so let's say your opponent is at 25 life. Yep. The only creature they have is the Plated Goliath. That's the 7-5 Overwhelm Warp card. Mm-hmm. And you have a Corrupted Behemoth, a Sauropod Crasher, and a Stranger. Just a slightly simplified version of what you had before. And we are at 10 life. Okay. We have no power available this turn. Let's say our opponent has one card in hand again. Uh, we've been top decking, right? Mm-hmm. They have been able to hold back our attacks because they have a 7-5 that's bigger than all our guys. But we have a 4-6, a 3-3, and a 2-2. And they're attacking now for some reason with us at 10 and them at 25. What do you think you would do here? At this point, I'm starting to be greedy a little bit because, again, I feel a little bit behind since we're not attacking. So we're behind in life for sure. We're, we're yeah, we're definitely life behind on life. I would very strongly consider double blocking with Sauropod and the Stranger. Sure. The reason being, I'm gonna need I need some I need a board presence in order to win this game, and Corrupted Behemoth is gonna be my access point to dragging out the game in order to swing the race. So sure. even if my opponent has a combat trick, I'm ready to say 
I'm ready to take five to get the combat trick out of their way and try to prolong the game with Corrupted Behemoth. I think and at then, this point, it's too much of a liability to risk losing the Behemoth because that's going to be our that's going to be my route to winning the game somehow. Sure, we'll we'll probably gain the life back for twisting the Behemoth anyway. Uh, whatever our situation was, and then in theory, you would be blocking with the Behemoth the next turn. Well, yeah, I would be looking to thing. twist and block, especially if I get the combat trick out of their hand with the first block. Yeah, that's interesting. So again here, I think I would just block with everything. And whatever they have, best case scenario, it kills the Sauropod Crasher. I mean, let's say they could have very swingy things like Conflagrate or uh, Frostwave in this sort of situation where we just mm -hmm. lose the game. Right. Uh, but I think we lose the game to Frostwave no matter what we do here. Right. Uh, now, Conflagrate, maybe we don't lose the game. But it's not looking great <laughs> if, if they conflagrate. Right. Well, on the they're, they're on at least six powers, so. Yeah. But, I mean, there's things that can happen. Sure. Is there any scenario where you just take the damage uh, and try and kill them? What, what life total would we have to be at before you would take the damage and uh, try and counterattack? Because we actually have nine attack to their seven. And we have, we're the ones with the Corrupted Behemoth. It's true. So what, what life total would we have to have before you would just take it? 11. Just 11, interesting. Assuming we have like 6 or 9 power, something in that range. Sure. So 11, 11... playing around the 3 damage spell that's available in the formats. Sure, so that, that plays around high alert, barrel through. It also, if, if we were to do something like double twist and attack, it puts us out of range of them just killing us <laughs> with their 7-5 attack. Uh, because two twists on the Corrupted Behemoth would put us to eight then right. after we take the damage. Would you be looking to put yourself in that situation then? If you'd go down to four, double twist yourself back up to eight, attack them for uh, 11? Or just oh, the six? Or would you? I mean, that's you, a really bold way to race. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And then if you can double twist again the next turn, maybe we're putting them close to dead or dead, depending on what life tolls are specifically. I think the math doesn't work out to make it exactly good here, but I think that is a play that you could make depending on what their life totals are. Like I yeah, think if their I mean, life total is even 24 instead of 25, that's a, that's a play we could in theory make. Yeah, I, that kind of throws out the window of anything changing. Yeah, exactly. And so, you no, know, since there's a, it's hard, it's hard. They to could have a creature, what, right? Right. It's hard to speculate. What are they going to top deck? What am I going to top deck? Um, you know, assuming yeah. no change to the board, I like blocking still. Sure, sure. Yeah. But. And you would still do the, the two little ones at something like 11 life. I think so. Yeah, I think even at 10 life, I'm, I'm okay getting two for one at the, at the late stage of the game. Um, sure, sure. So like we, I, we I'm admitting, to... like, okay, I know I'm playing from behind. I need something pretty good to happen for me to win this game against the Goliath. Yeah, and then we're hoping that like our double twist puts us above the seven in case they play just like a stranger or something that we can block. Sure. And then we're hoping to eventually trade the corrupted behemoth for their plated Goliath, and then we're back to even or with. Uh, life disadvantage something like that yeah hopefully i mean my my goal at, at this stage in the game is to continue prolonging the game because it's sure. in my opponent's best interest to finish the game as quickly as possible 
So I think something like 11 life is the minimum at which I would take it and try to race uh, 11 life versus 24. If we were at like 20 or something, I would be very inclined to just take it, start twisting the behemoth and start attacking them because because behemoth turns the race so strongly in our favor. Uh, and yeah, then it's somewhere in between time. those. Yeah, yeah. You just don't have to take the risk. I mean, maybe what they have is high alert and they can try and block and use the trick there. But if it's any other kind of trick, then I think you're better off just trying to race them. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm willing from 20, I'm willing to take that first hit. Um, With, but you would attack, right? You wouldn't just keep taking hits. Or would you... No, something would have, I mean, something would have to change, because I'm not going to sit there and take seven three times. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a pretty good way to lose when you're at 20. I mean, that's kind of, uh, that That could be an easy way that we end up in this scenario is, <laughs> you know, that kind of, that misconception of, oh, you know, I don't want to risk my units by not blocking. But I mean, if you don't attack, don't attack once, don't attack twice, and you've taken 14. Yeah, exactly. Floating in that 11 range. Yeah, that that I think that's a, a mistake a lot of people make uh, is they w- will be too passive when they block and too passive when they attack. And that's mm-hmm. it's not like unrealistic if you're passive to be passive in both situations. Right. But you have to be like active in at least one or you're just waiting for your opponent to kill you. Um, so I, I think you have to do something here, either like some kind of multi-block. I think the... I think your play is not uh, not bad to block with the three three and the two two and you know best case scenario take two over one and lose your guys and have a corrupted behemoth left over. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's not bad. I, I think the multi block and like the average case being I have Crasher and Stranger left over and they have nothing. I think that's okay as well to, to block with everything. Sure. And if we were at a higher life total, I think taking it and racing might be okay or trying to like do the same thing we were doing before just trade two little guys and uh kill them with a behemoth is is pretty reasonable i i actually like your play of blocking with all three if we're at a higher life total and because then it doesn't matter as much what the one creature that's left over is or whatever yeah and i i'm just you know i'm a little leery i i'm a little bit risk averse in that I don't necessarily think that Sword of Podcrasher and Praxis Stranger, if I draw power for the rest of the game, will be enough to win that game. Sure, sure. I've, I've beaten a lot of people with 3-3 <laughs> three, three and a 2-2 two, two as the last two units left over. So That's I fair. I had a, I had a, a really good run with um, the 3-3 three, three Yeti for 3 that doesn't do anything else. Yeah. I think that's actually quite a reasonable card in five color because you just need something that costs three and mm-hmm. a three, three is way better than like a two, three or a three, two or anything along those lines. I mean, it's perfectly, it's fine. It goes late. What do you want out of a card really <laughs> to like just randomly do some stuff? I want stuff. every card to be corrupted behemoth at its on curve. Yeah, that's fine with me. Uh, is there any other kind of interesting blocking scenario that you've been thinking about that you want to run by here? Some combat tricks playing with or playing around combat tricks? The the big thing for me about when I have a combat trick is making sure that it's a combat that I think matters enough to use the trick. It's a boring example, but stranger, stranger block, like they're, yeah. they're always going to negate each other. So there's no real advantage to using the trick there. 
unless you're doing something super aggressive. I so, agree. A combat trick is kind of a removal spell. You're drafting it with the intent of it being a removal spell, right? Mm-hmm. If if we look at these Tremor Shocker attacks we were looking at here before, like a high alert is a three for one. And, you know, you keep your Tremor Shocker alive. You kill three of their guys. Like if you use, if my opponent uses a combat trick to kill one of my tutus, that's just not relevant. It doesn't matter. Right. Uh, and they're using power like on curve typically to do it. I'm, I have more stuff in my deck. I'm just going to play a three, three. I'm going to play a two, four. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not espousing for being really aggressive to do damage with, to face with combat tricks here. But there is a very real component. If you're choosing to race with someone, the extra three damage from a combat trick at the end on an unblocked unit is a good way to speed up the race in your favor. Oh, uh, 100%. Yeah. And if you keep that damage concealed, it can be game winning. Right. right. Like I have had, I have streets of flame to my opponents for lethal in a race when they were attacking me with three, three creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, there's, your opponent attacks you with two three threes and you're at nine let's say right yep and you have uh two 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 flyers and your streets of flame and they're at seven you just don't use (laughs) you don't use your streets of flame there right no the way you lose is if you streets of flame and they barrel through you just take your six damage attack them for four and kill them yep and sometimes you'll lose because they have a streets of flame but if their trick, if they have no trick, or if their trick is a pump spell, the way you lose is by trying to remove their creature. The, right. the way you win is by just waiting. Be, yep. be patient. Yeah. So that's kind of my um, my big thing. I'm kind of retelling a story, but uh, go for it. I just uh, I j- in a recentish game of Draft or Sealed, I had just tried playing with flash grenades, but I was in one of these like complicated board states with a bunch of two twos and three twos or whatever and there came that decision point do i want to use my flash grenade to win a mediocre combat that doesn't really matter or do i want to try to bait my opponent into a race that i know they can't win and i'm convinced if i had used the flash grenade to win that irrelevant combat um, between the two two twos or whatever it was i would have lost that game now having played flash grenade would you say that is a better defensive trick or offensive trick in general in a wide board state, would you rather be the person blocking or the person attacking when you have the uh, the flash grenade? I would rather be blocking. Yeah, a hundred percent. Blanking, <laughs> blanking, uh, blanking a daring maneuver feels really good. Well, and if they do some kind of crazy all-out attack, and you just set up all trades, mm-hmm. like the flash grenade means they just lose all their guys. <laughs> Sure, or even in like the late game closing out the race, because this is how I won my game. My yeah. opponent attacked, did a ace based, and you know had had what was essentially lethal. I set my blocks. I was ready for the daring maneuver, and the flash grenade blanked all of their attackers. It was exactly. still a close race. I was at one life, but that one life let me attack for lethal the following turn. And in a ra- in racing scenarios, it's very good as well, especially if there's multiple creatures involved, because it's a pretty good life gain spell. If you're one turn behind in the clock or or whatnot, like it can give you that one turn quite easily by canceling out an opponent's attack. That's like getting two turns in a row. So that card's really good. 
So cool. Anything else you want to say about uh, just blocking and combat tricks? I, I really like what you're saying here. I like patience. I like you know, making sure that it has the impact that you need it to have to win the game. Those are just really good tips. That's kind of the crux of of limited in my mind. Like, you know, you try to out leverage your your spells and units, and you know, the discussion that we've had about blocking and attacking weighs into that because that's a leveraging of your resources also. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, the goal is you are racing. The end of the day is a race always. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Um, because off, it's just so often that, you know, your opponent is attacking you in a way that you can't interact with. So you attack them in a way that they can't interact with. And you have to hope that, you know, your side of that comes out on top sometimes. But you only give yourself the opportunity to do that if you, like, take advantage of your opportunities. Right. If you're, if you're too passive, then you're just you're waiting to, to die. Uh, but then that is contrasted by our suggestion that you be very passive with your uh, combat tricks and just I be... I don't know if I mean be passive with your combat tricks. No, I, I mean, that could be interpreted as being passive. Sure. Being I think patient. be intentional with your combat tricks. Yeah, yeah. Make sure you get your value. Whereas when it comes down to attacking and blocking, it's just make sure that you are proactive. So the second uh, topic we were interested to talk, to talk about with you about uh, threat assessment, depending on game state and how to use uh, removal spells differently, depending on what kind of a situation uh, the board is in. So Katasuju, would you like to lay out your high level thoughts on this a little bit? My very high level thoughts, use the removal spell on the thing that you can't beat some other way. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. We talked about this a little bit in the previous section about if there's a big board stall, things that uh, avoid the board stall are the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So like you both have a bunch of three fives and one of you has a flyer, that person is winning. It doesn't really matter how big of a board stall things are the other way. So I have also talked about this with Patrick on previous episodes where I wouldn't use a removal spell on Bam Sneaky Peaky. I don't know if you know what Bam Sneaky Peaky is. He's but. the 3-5 for 4 and 2 primal that when he attacks, he creates a 1-1 one, one Yeti spy, and he has a lot trigger about the market that doesn't matter in limited. So I wouldn't kill that uh, if I could block it, right? So the, the example creatures that you were talking about were like some dorky flyer like a Valkyrie militant and a corrupted behemoth, and you have an eviscerate in your hand. Well, there's certainly board states where you would eviscerate the corrupted behemoth and board states where you would eviscerate the Valkyrie militant. And the difference between those board states is very important to consider. So like, what are some scenarios where you would eviscerate the corrupted behemoth over the Valkyrie militant? Assuming you have nothing else in hand, well, that's part of the scenario. So talk talk to me about some scenarios where you would eviscerate a corrupted behemoth uh, and some scenarios where you would eviscerate a Valkyrie militant. Okay. So the the kind of the factors become what I'm playing towards. So as I as I play a game of draft or limited or really any any in-game any game of eternal, ideally your game plan is changing based on the dynamic that's in play, the board state, the life totals, cards in hand, and those other factors. So in deciding which one I need to eviscerate is going to be dependent on the objective that I've decided for that moment. You know, if in the case where I have my two three fives, 
I'm going to be more, say, two three fives and nothing that's going to be able to block the Valkyrie Militant because I'm not good at drafting flyers. Sure. Um, Welcome to the club. Yep. We have, we have free uh, T-shirts. So if you have if you have no other way to answer the flyer and you have a reasonable like double block on a behemoth, you would eviscerate the flyer, even I though would, yeah. the flyer is kind of a, a much lower value card in a draft. Mm-hmm. So what are some scenarios where you would eviscerate the behemoth? Uh, if I'm far enough behind and my opponent is being aggressive with the behemoth and I feel like my life total is going to dwindle before I can answer the behemoth and the militant. So if I'm if I'm in a state where I need to prolong the game, you can take a lot more hits from a 2-2 than a 5-5 overwhelm or whatever they decide to put corrupted behemoth to. Um, sure, sure. And like the further you are behind maybe you, you were talking about that a little bit so like if um if you don't have anything let's say and they have a corrupted behemoth and a uh, and a 2-2 flyer and you're at 10 or whatever you would mm-hmm. just you're in in that situation you just kind of have to eviscerate the corrupted behemoth and hope that you can draw an answer to the flyer that's the sort of thing you're talking about yeah definitely because i mean a two uh a five-turn clock is a lot longer than a two-turn clock. Yeah, it gives you a lot of turns to get out of it, either either by drawing the flyers you didn't draft, or dra- <laughs> drawing the removal spells. And like, you know, finding a way to race. Like, I think racing exactly. the militant is a fine is a fine proposition, even if it's a little bit of a scary one. Sure. Um, like, if if you just draw your own corrupted behemoth, or you draw uh, just some random biggish creature. Yep. You can potentially race there. I think that's yeah. Quite so possible. five turns, five turns to race is again a lot better than two. Yeah. Um, so again, the further behind I feel, the more inclined I'll be to eviscerate the corrupted behemoth. Um, but if I really don't have an answer to the militant, if you're just on that clock, um, yeah. And I think the I think what you said before about not being able to handle it some other way. Right. I think that that's that's very true. And then like. Uh, the con- you talked a little bit about the content of your deck. So if you're playing a bunch of conflagrates or uh, shocks or that sort of thing, yep, uh, you would give yourself the time to draw those cards uh, while removing the bigger threat, assuming you couldn't deal with the bigger threat. Yeah, I mean, that's like the quintessential, like play to your outs, buy time. You know, I have five turns to draw my two, three flyer instead of no time to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really good. I think a lot of people would, in their mind, like line up the removal spell with like the value of the removal spell with mm-hmm. the value of the creature right. in a non-situational way. Uh, like they would want their best removal spell to kill your opponent's best uh, standalone creature without considering the situation that you're currently in in the in the game because uh, I think that is very important and I'm glad that you're you're calling that out right and that goes that goes back to your thing about not killing dead units right yeah for sure yeah I mean a corrupted behemoth is a great card but it can still be dead to a board stall exactly it's in fact quite easily so when you're in those board stalls like it, it's real hard to break through uh you need something like a one of the various uh breakthrough combat tricks that we have like um uh, cannon 
barrel through mighty strikes frost wave something really big and swingy to uh, break through those board stalls otherwise the game's probably going to be won by something like an unanswered flyer Mm -hmm. so you you definitely want to have your removal spells uh, go towards that end how about let since conflagrate is in the format again conflagrate back from the set five days yeah that's so good that card is really good Let's say you have seven power, right? And there's a board stall and they have a 2-2 flyer. Do you, uh, how, and let's say they have, you know, some 3-3s or whatever, but nobody's attacking on the ground. Sure. What do you do with that conflict? I mean, if I don't have another answer to the flyer and that's how I'm losing the game, I'm definitely putting at least one of the amplifies on the flyer. Let's say let's say you're at twenty three because they hit you with it already once. All right. And they have they have their two two flyer and there's just a very large board stall and whatever whatever other questions you might want to ask, go ahead and ask them. But they they do have at least a three three uh, on the ground and okay. a two two flyer and you have conflagrate seven power and twenty three life to play with. Oh man, I'm waiting for a little while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How much? And I think that's a thing that. Uh, a large percentage of people would not do. They will pick up their quote-unquote free 3-3, which wasn't doing anything, <laughs> and kill the flyer, and then maybe lose to the next flyer. So you would wait for something, right? For them yeah, to do... I, don't, I mean... Cast withstand on their flyer or something crazy. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I could even see something like starting to attack with one of, if I have more than, like, a large unit or a couple of large units, I could see starting to attack. Um, yeah. Conflict then, does a nice job of creating scenarios that are good for you when you're swinging. Yeah, that's, I think that's really interesting. I think, so, I think a lot of people would kill the flyer and incidentally pick up a 3-3, right? The 3-3 mm-hmm. the three, three is the secondary effect of the conflagrate. And I think what you're trying to do here is attack clear out a bunch of guys and maybe incidentally kill the flyer right so your opponent blocks your uh six six with three strangers or whatever Mm. right and you kill one of those strangers you kill the flyer which you wanted to kill anyway right and you you know greatly simplify their ability to do that same attack in the future so your conflagrate was a four for one there instead of a two for one yeah. Um, the most important creature was the flyer, but you did you managed to clear up many more of their small creatures than you would otherwise by being a little more patient and a little more aggressive, right? So you're combining the patience of not immediately using your removal spell to the value of using it at an optimal time for you. And I think that that's really good. That's yeah, really definitely. Good. I mean, that's that's the dream, right? I want I want all of my cards to be one sided wraths. I like that that patience. Uh, leveraging your life total is in there a little bit as well. You're not mm-hmm. going to die right away to the 2-2, two, two, so you can afford to wait. To, I mean, if your opponent plays either another flyer, uh, if you draw like an archive curator or something, then their 2-2 two, two flyer doesn't matter. So mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't have to use your removal spell. You can save it for a later date when it's even better. I really like that. But then as your life total goes down... Your ability to do this kind of tricky stuff uh, gets reduced. How low would your life total have to be for you to conflagrate uh, just their flyer and a and a three three or whatever? If I start like 
If I start flooding, I become a little bit less patient, which might or might not be a good thing. Once you're starting to get close to like heretics cannon range or some kind of larger opportunity for your opponent to be more aggressive, I think you're paid off sooner, especially if your life total is not pressured immediately. Um, you know, like I said, I think having the conflagrate does a really nice job of allowing you to start getting your attacks going. Yeah, um, the the conflagrate. Uh, the only thing that like super punishes you for holding the conflagrate is things like unit weapons, mm -hmm. uh, because you can't react to them like you might be able to in other games. Right. Uh, so you do get a little punished in those scenarios, um, but I think you get paid off in much in a much more strong way by being a little patient uh, and a little aggressive to try and get get the uh, conflagrate to do something positive for you. Yeah, I think uh, the, um, the be, being a little more aggressive with your units on the ground will will not solve the weapon, like the Voltroning up a, yeah, a yeah. flyer, but it will, even if you decide, even if they like weapon up, and you get your a really good value off the conflagrate or whatever combat trick you're playing, you're in a better racing position at the end of that. So the worst case of them having a stronger flyer um, versus you know your superior ground team is still a race I think I'm willing to be in. Yeah, I th I think I like your your attitude here. That's it's really good. No play that we would tell you to make is a hundred percent accurate, no matter what your opponent does. But just the uh, the chance of it working out well for you is so much higher than the chance of it working out poorly for you. You just have to not um, be overly uh, weighed toward those scenarios that feel bad. Like, if we could take a little bit of a sidetrack here, how do you prevent yourself from being, from overvaluing, let's say, negative experiences where you make the right play, but it doesn't work out because your opponent did something unlikely, right? Does this make does this question make sense? Yeah. Like, um, let's say let's say you have the right play ninety percent of the time, right? Sure. And it doesn't work, right? Because your opponent did something. Now that's still the right play, even though they had the something. Right. It's just so much easier to remember the scenario where it didn't work because you mm -hmm. lost, because it felt bad. How do you prevent yourself from making the wrong play in the future because of that experience? How do I? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> you just forget it? I mean, <laughs> no, I, I, have, I have that memory. Like, you don't get to win every game. The nature of Eternal and card games in general and any game you just don't win every time that's not the way that the world works yeah um, and so okay. you need to trust in your learning and trust in your process that incrementally over time your game is improving as long as you're working to develop making better in-game decisions i know that doesn't really that doesn't necessarily help with in the moment tilt but i find taking a deep breath really helps <laughs> yeah some i think that that is just a good suggestion like if you are someone who enjoys winning quite a lot and you lose, that can cause you to make bad decisions. <clears throat> Jason. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I Honestly, I talked about this before in the podcast. I'm a relatively even-keeled person, uh, but when I have a couple losses, like I'm much more likely to lose a game after I lose a game because I'm probably doing something that is not like psychologically valid <laughs> when, when I, you know, I, oh, I mold to six. 
I, I redo, redo to six that last game. Uh, this hand's kind of bad, but maybe I can play some stuff. You know, I make a different decision because of that uh, redraw to six that didn't work out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I make a bad decision on whether I'll redraw to six again and lose because of it. Like, that's a very common situation that people get into. And I think you are extremely even keeled (laughs) (laughs) and like any kind of calming action that you can take there is probably pretty reasonable. Go get a drink of water, reset yourself. I mean, is there anything else that you would suggest? I actually think this is something that you can practice in games that you're losing anyway. Um, Don't check out of those games. Like if you're just getting steamrolled, like I understand that there's a real a strong instinct to just grab the concede button and be like, okay, they curved out two, three, four, five with all premium units. Um, don't check out of those games because that's a good opportunity to work on your like resilience and still work. Like it feels really bad. It feels terrible to just get curved out when your first play is on four or whatever because your hand yeah. wasn't great. Um, but you can For practice sure. that kind of resilience by still making your plays play the game to a conclusion where you're actually dead and yeah i think just focus on trying to make the like reasonable plays or good plays while you're while you're getting steamrolled because it's going to be good practice for when you make that stupid mistake coming back and continuing to make good plays afterwards when it's cl- when in a future closer scenario you'll yep. you'll t- take better results if you if you're the kind of person who needs to spend a little bit of time thinking about the decisions that you could make think about the decisions that you could make and not about the other stuff that didn't go well in that game sure. like oh they had the heretics cannon guess i lose that game but if you're going to if you're going to want to be self analytical about it make sure that you're looking at were there times in the earlier part of that game where i didn't get my damage in that I could have maybe finished that game before the cannon came down. Um, so look for the look for the actually actionable things rather than the bad things that happen that are going to tell you. Yeah, I think once you get uh, so there's there there'll be games like you say where you were never in the game, and I think how you handle those can be different than how you handle other games. That's fine. And then there's going to be games that are close and you lost. And I think for those games, you really do have to look at like the whole game because oftentimes Eternal is kind of a snowball-y game. If you make a, a suboptimal play on one turn, it can really add up on future turns or like you say, missing damage from an earlier attack or something like that. You, you need a more like holistic approach to how the game went. And it's really hard to do that unless you're recording your game in some way. Sure. And then there's the games you win and you tend to not think about those at all. <laughs> Yep, that's a, that's another a, good resilience practice because yeah. you're feeling good. Yeah. Um, in games that you're feeling good and cruising, um, try to stay deeply engaged. Make sure that you're not making any small mistakes that can add up later, um, or or become habits for a more long term kind of look. Uh, I just had, <laughs> I just had a game where I like chump attacked with a desert marshal for no good reason. Yeah, I've done that before. Um, like it didn't matter in that context. I was so far ahead in that game that it was irrelevant. But you know, that's not the kind of habit that you want to develop with your with your units. Exactly. I think when you're very far ahead, like I think people play maybe like the best when it's close, uh, and the probably the worst when the further they are ahead. Like 
the, the farther you are ahead, the worse you play in general. And I think that's an, something that w- when you end up losing those games, it feels really bad. But when you're just close to losing them, uh, then maybe you don't learn the lessons that you should from, yeah. from what's going on there. And that's I think those are true. they're really hard mistakes to find because in the end you won the game. So your mind classifies those things as good. Good decisions were made, uh, obviously. So that's definitely something to to keep an eye on. That was a really good discussion, I think. Overall, uh, is there anything? Can we uh, can we get your information again, Gatosujo, before uh, before we wrap things up here? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Mark. I'm from the Misplay. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The Misplay. You can email us with inquiries at info at themisplay.com. We have a Discord in our show notes. I'm Gato Sujo in-game, and my co-host Jason is Parmalee in-game. Yeah, and you've been accepting friends list requests from people that you play uh, famously, yep. except at, like growing the community and uh, having a very positive attitude in general. We're trying. Uh, I would... I definitely suggest giving uh, giving the misplay a listen. Uh, they're on a, a bi-weekly schedule right now, but they have a lot of good episodes. Uh, historically, I've listened to a lot of them, and I've learned a lot. So uh, if you're interesting, interested in self-improvement and just generically how to get better at playing any game, including Eternal, definitely give those guys a listen. Cool. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks again for sure. having us, Patamaru and uh, Barefoot Farmer or Ruben. So this has yeah. been really cool. So that's our show for this week. Thank again to all our patrons for making this show a success. And yeah, everyone who's posts in Discord too. They're uh, really helping grow an awesome community. And for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Uh, Join us in the aforementioned Discord, link in the show notes, and on our website. And then finally, give a thumbs up to all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts. And don't forget to send in all your 7-win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Bye. Thanks, everyone.